0: Well, if you uh, drive, you know that the price of gas has been going up and up and up. The old record broken just a couple of days ago, a White Rock gas station with a posted sign of $1.69.9 per litre. So let's bring in Dan McTagg, a petroleum analyst with GasBuddy.com, to talk a bit more about this. Good morning to you.
1: Oh, good morning, Jill. And of course, you're driving today and all stations now are moving to one sixty nine point nine. those stations at White Rock, uh, According to my uh, our gas buddy website here, uh, some of them are dollars seventy point nine so a whole new era when it comes to gasoline pricing across North America.
0: yeah, not the record that anybody wants to be breaking, especially if you are out on the road. Uh, I know you were talking about this earlier, talking about some of the refineries and maintenance happening because in California as well, there have been huge increases in the prices. Is it because of that maintenance at this point?
1: Uh, it was the original part with maintenance the other factor that has made things very complicated has uh, been uh, no fewer than five u.s refineries uh, on the west coast now uh, going into unexpected uh, unplanned maintenance they've had issues and it's uh, not just caused a, a problem for us in terms of compounding the problem we we saw originally uh, back at the i say the middle of march when uh, cherry point bp cherry points uh, refinery Went down for uh, extended uh, maintenance. Not all units, but some of them. That uh, really created a supply crunch throughout the entire Pacific Coast of uh, the U.S. and Canada. Of course, here in Vancouver, we have uh, a chronic problem. We have, at any given time, we're scrambling to uh, meet our needs. We have a plugged transmountain pipeline. With no more capacity, uh, we have uh, American refiners who have options in terms of where they can sell their gasoline, especially into the very lucrative California market. And of course, we have a very small uh, Parkland refinery, formerly Chevron, uh, which uh, does not produce much more than a third of the uh, the domestic or the needs we have here in the Lower Mainland and Vancouver Island.
0: Uh, you mentioned earlier, I know, saying that there might be some relief on the way come uh, around Wednesday. Is that still the case? Are we able to, to tell that far ahead?
1: Yeah, Jill, what I was looking at was the uh, BP's refinery uh, was supposed to come out of maintenance by the 13th. So uh, we should have since yesterday the indication, which probably won't be made public until tomorrow, uh, as to whether or not they've been able to complete their rather lengthy maintenance schedule Uh, If that is the case, then that might take a little bit of pressure off. The second factor was I saw about a $0.09 a gallon drop uh, in the Los Angeles spot market for cash prices for gasoline. Now, that might have been profit-taking. It might have also been some uh, movers there uh, who were uh, basically uh, finding a little bit of extra spare fuel here and there. But I don't think I'm going to really know until at least Tuesday uh, where we'll wind up for the Easter long weekend. Uh, but you know the fact that we're here at a dollar, what is it, for all intents and purposes, a dollar seventy a liter, which is about forty cents a liter higher than what we were say at the beginning of February. Uh, is um, is having obviously rippling effects throughout the local economy. Uh,
0: indeed, because it gets passed on. It's not just the price at the pump. It's uh, everything uh, suddenly becomes a bit more expensive or can. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, the government doing something, our provincial government doing something to help ease the pain at the pump. Uh, the premier has come back and said it's not all taxes. Uh, he said that the companies are price gouging. Uh, is there truth to that?
1: Well, I, I think he's changed his tune a little bit because I think uh, someone's actually taking the time uh, to show him what's happened on the market. And if you look at the Pacific Northwest market, um, which is two forty four, two forty five a gallon, and say you go back to I don't know uh, the beginning of March when it was only a uh, dollar forty nine, that's almost a dollar uh, a gallon increase. Works out to about thirty thirty five cents. Uh, I think the premium is vulnerable on a couple of fronts. One. Uh, he has compounded the problem as you know as small as he maybe tried to mitigate it to having increased the carbon tax which now sits at 9.33 cents a litre and having spent a considerable amount of his political capital blocking a pipeline that would have actually brought in more gasoline i want to re- strike that to emphasize that because i know a lot of people think the expansion is just about building a new pipeline that's going to send the, to use the uh, the words bit uh, overseas uh, in fact, i go to California and a lot more to Washington State. There is the existing Trans Mountain Pipeline, which would be increased. Uh, its capacity would increase 50,000 barrels a day, and that cannot be heavy oil. It has to be light fuels or light oil. So if you think about it, um, that terminus, that, that where that oil comes from, where that gasoline comes from, is uh, Edmonton, whose wholesale prices today are about 83 cents a liter when ours are five x tax. So yes, Uh, A premier that has blocked a pipeline that could for all intents and purposes already be near completion, especially when it comes to the existing Trans Mountain pipeline increasing by 50,000 barrels a day. Uh, He has no one to blame but himself here.
0: Uh, Because there's always a debate over that uh, with people uh, arguing and it takes off on social media anytime this topic comes up with people saying we don't actually get a lot of our gas from Alberta. It's not that big of an impact. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't it? uh, And I mean, we're looking at this if we see a change in government. In Alberta, if Jason Kenney becomes the premier, he's threatening to shut the taps off to BC completely. I mean, that would go to the court system. That would probably wouldn't happen right away, but if it did, wouldn't that up the price? It would make it even more scarce and up the price that way.
1: Well, I think your government there is taking it very seriously because they know that uh, you know they can't hide behind the rhetoric and uh, you know climate and uh, riding bikes and doing all sorts of other wonderful things. The reality is that that Trans Mountain pipeline, as it currently stands. Supplies better than a third of the fuel you need to uh, move your economy. Uh, Some of it, of course, is railed, uh, but it's not just the gasoline. The Parkland refinery (laughs) relies to a large extent on that oil. Now, having said that, are there alternatives? You you bet there are. You can go around the world and buy it from Russia. You can buy it from the United States. You can buy it from anybody, but you're not going to be buying it for the current market price. And that's why, you know, rather than saying this will create a shortage, I think it will, uh, you're going to be paying through the nose of the hose, is an expression I've used many times. Uh, Two dollars a liter would be, you know, a no-brainer when you consider that you're already at dollar seventy and has nothing to do with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. That uh, I think would put things in perspective for a lot of people because it's not just, of course, the gasoline that comes down there; it's the oil that we need to process. So fully, uh, unless the United States has a lot of extra fuel left over, and they don't uh the uh, in, a, in a, as we're heading towards the busy summer months uh, the heady days of summer driving even if we don't do that here in Vancouver uh, even if we all got on our bicycles and uh, put our all of our you know our golf equipment on our backs and, and drove around and did that uh, well, what we're, we're we're told to do and i see a lot of folks on twitter doing this kind of thing they're tutting those who drive around in vehicles even if we do all those things, at the end of the day, you're still going to wind up with a rather cataclysmic blow to the economy. More importantly, your own government recognizes that. It does note uh, in its uh, documents about uh, why it wants to ensure that there is no disruption to the flow of the Trans Mountain, existing Trans Mountain pipeline, that there could be uh, social upheaval, social chaos, a social crisis. Call it what you want. They know what's coming down the, uh, the, uh, the pipeline. And unfortunately, uh, it's, uh, it's likely to destabilize the Vancouver economy.
0: And one other question about prices, because this comes up or it came up again, I think, from Friday to Saturday in that we saw on Friday uh, the 169.9 cents. Then on on Saturday morning, uh, some people were tweeting about the fact that in some areas it had dropped 10 cents and wondering, how do all the gas stations know? Because you can't call a gas station. They can't tell you the price over the phone. So how do they all know? Oh, it's dropped. We got to go down to 155.9. How do they know and all do it at the same time?
1: Uh, Jill, that's a good question. There are two factors here. The first is that the wholesale price is pretty much etched in stone. Um, they will be given the note that the wholesale price for gasoline is a dollar five. It doesn't matter where you are in the area it's served by the uh, by uh, Translink, because of course the tax is much higher. You then have to add in your equation on that dollar five point four. And by the way, you can see that. Go to Petro Canada Daily Rack Price, and not just for yourself, but for those listening and you'll see the dollar 5.4. You then add the federal provincial taxes of 44.39 cents a litre. Then you add the 12 cents, which is the uh, retail margin. And that's critical, that's the second component, plus the GST, which is about seven and a half eight 8 58 a litre. So there you have 53 cents a uh, litre for all the taxes on top of the wholesale price. Uh, and then of course, whatever the retailer decides to charge. Now the retailer has, the gas station has some discretion over 12 cents a liter. Some I see are charging $1.40 today at a time when their wholesale price is about $1.60. So, uh, sorry, $1.56, $1.57. So clearly there is an issue. Um, and, and you have uh, that $0.12 cents a litre is often what's played. We're often seeing cases here. I'm seeing $1.40 at some Chevron stations in Surrey. That tells me that they're selling gasoline below cost. Take advantage of it. Use the Gas Buddy website, and uh, you'll probably save a few
0: pennies. All right, which I know a lot of drivers uh, will, uh, are looking to do that right now for sure. Uh, Dan, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time.
1: Good to be here, and thanks for having me.
0: Well, uh, there are thousands of people, I imagine, right this moment, gearing up for the annual Vancouver Sun Run. It is happening today. Uh, I've got a pretty good view of it from where our studios are on the corner of Howe and Georgia. We're on the 21st floor. I've been watching the balloons, a lot of road closures as well, though. So if you're not taking part in the Sun Run, you probably want to avoid many parts of the downtown and the race, which goes over the Canby Bridge. It also goes over the Burrard Bridge those bridges will be closed to vehicle traffic uh, later today. I think they actually already are. at least a couple of them are. the um the broad bridge closes at eight, so it closes in about a half hour and the Camby Bridge is closed now, 7.30, and it will reopen at 1.00. The Burrard will reopen around noon today. So going to be a little congested downtown with tens of thousands of runners taking place and the route goes over, again, over the Canby Bridge, It goes along 2nd uh, Avenue so uh, parts of Kitsilano and then back over the, sorry, that's the Burrard then back over the canby uh, Pacific Avenue downtown as well. So keep that in mind if you have to get out and about, because there are uh, forty. Thousand plus participants taking all uh, lacing up and doing that ten k route starts at Georgia and uh, Barard, and again very busy day today. We're going to talk to the race director in just a few moments. He is going to join us and let us know the five things you need to know before you go if you are a participant and also if you are uh, a spectator. If you want to cheer people on, and having run the Sun Run a few times. I can tell you, having people cheering you on actually makes all the difference. I used to have friends that would sit uh, in Fairview Slopes. They would sit at the bottom of the hill and it was a morning for them. They'd bring out their lawn chairs, they had coffee there, uh, they would give you coffee if you needed it while you were running by and they would cheer people on. Uh, one of many, many groups out there to cheer on but it does kind of help with the energy. If you're feeling a little bit down around kilometer eight or kilometer seven, having people uh, cheer you on and the music helps uh, as well. So good luck to everybody who's taking part in the Sun Run today and- And again, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in uh, the coming uh, moments. But first, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about housing, because it's certainly a topic that is top of mind for many people. And we often look at what governments are doing, whether it's bringing in different taxes, policies, uh, trying to build so-called affordable housing. Does any of it really work? Where does it leave us? Well, Daniel Fontaine is a civic affairs columnist with the ORCA. He's written about this and joins us on the line now. Daniel, good morning.
2: Good morning, Jill.
0: Uh, you've written about some of the policies. Uh, people are likely familiar with a lot of them, being the speculation tax, the empty homes tax, uh, the stress test when it comes to getting a mortgage. Uh, going through any of those, uh, what outcome, uh, what uh, consequences are we seeing uh, with uh, all of these different measures?
2: Well, I guess uh, my column, uh, just to give you a, a little fun story with this, I submitted it to, uh, to my editor and I had the headline on it, uh, the intended consequences of some of the policies that we're uh, you know imposing to try to get a, a handle and try to increase affordable housing and, and he wrote back to me and said I think he meant unintended consequences and I said no actually I meant intended consequences because there are a number of policies that are being implemented now uh, in the province which are and we don't talk about this actually quite openly but they're intended to actually lower the value of people's single family homes and condos that's the intention of them it's We talk about it in the context of affordable housing, but things like the speculation tax um, that we've got now at the province, uh, which imposes an additional tax burden for those who are deemed to be speculators. We have the vacancy tax as well provincially. We have a vacancy tax now in Vancouver. There is a, a myriad of these taxes, which sole goal really is to drive down the value of people's homes. And that was what I was writing about was the, Intended consequence, because I think people don't quite realize that if they have a mortgage and they have a home and they paid a million dollars for a house, the, the intention is to lower the value of that home and to have you have a mortgage perhaps uh, bigger than the actual value of your house. Which we all know when that happens, there are some much bigger consequences to people's personal finance.
0: And, and do you think it is actually having that impact? If we, in that we have seen uh, the the values mm. drop in some areas, but but not everywhere.
2: Well, actually, if you look at the numbers, and I included that in the column, some of the data from the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, and it's actually, um, it's it's a yes and a no. In areas like West Vancouver, uh, which obviously is is hyperinflated and very expensive, the price drop in the last year was something in the neighbourhood of 17%. So if you you bought a home for a couple million bucks, which would be on the low end, I'm assuming, in West Vancouver, your house a year later is now worth 17% less. But even in places like Port Coquitlam and and New Westminster and more kind of uh, working class communities, um, those home prices, single-family home prices, have gone down by about 10%. So if you bought it for a million, it's now worth $900,000. And and the Royal Bank of of Canada, one of their housing economists, just came out this week and said uh, get ready. There's a lot more of this to come. We've just started down that roller coaster um, on the other end with prices going down. And And, you know, if you listen to the academics and you listen to some of the folks who are pushing for this, um, you know, realistically, what they're looking at is and what they'd be pleased with is if people's homes were valued maybe 30 or 40 percent less, because that's only when you get to that point are you actually going to be able to in any way say that our region is affordable again. And I think that's where I think people get a bit nervous if their house is valued at 40 percent less than what they purchased it. What does that mean for them?
0: Uh, right, and we and we often don't talk about that, or, or there's there tends to be little sympathy uh, for people, uh, and, and perhaps coming from people who don't own or are having difficulty finding a home mm-hmm. in that uh, th- that somebody already has one. But you mentioned this: if your mortgage is bigger and your value is dropping, that's not a good scenario.
2: No, we've seen this show before um, down in the United States when people started having homes that were valued more than their uh, mortgages, uh, so. Uh, or or the value of their home was less than the mortgage. We saw what happened in the U.S. And I'm not saying that's going to happen here, but all I can say is that the trend line is now moving down. And once there's a momentum in the housing market, I mean, we we saw essentially home sales last month. uh, They were at almost historic lows, record lows. uh, The last 30 years, I don't think we've seen a fewer number of homes sold. So you've got a position where, Uh, People who are uh, going to get into the market are saying to themselves, I'm going to hold off because prices are going down. You have people who've purchased in the market at a higher end saying, I'm not lowering my price. We're in a bit of a a Mexican standoff here waiting to see what's going to happen. And as a result, prices are beginning to go down. And even at 10% over a year, that's a fairly dramatic drop.
0: Uh, it is definitely uh, you mentioned this in the column as well though, and and I suppose it, it depends what happens next if those prices continue to drop because if not, it it gets us to a scenario like you said where West Vancouver has had a huge hit uh, the The mansions have come down in price, but that doesn 't make things affordable for people that 's not I, I would assume that 's not uh, the outcome that the government was looking for yeah. with these measures.
2: Well, I certainly hope the intended consequence was not to make mansions more affordable in West Vancouver because if that is the case, they've they've done a great job. Uh, They've actually made mansions much more affordable, uh, and I'm putting that in quotes. Uh, What's interesting is that uh, I was looking and analyzing as well the condo prices, and and interestingly, on the lower end of the market where people would be able to come in, um, the condo prices have not fallen anywhere near what they've been falling, uh, for example, by way of of, uh, house prices. And then at the same time, we have uh, measures being put in, uh, the federal government put in stricter mortgage uh, rules, which mean that means that fewer people can actually uh, get in. So you're seeing this scenario where government's imposing all these policies, and yet at the lower end of the market where you would hope people would be able to find more affordable housing, either they're being cut out because they can't get a mortgage, or they're finding that the prices aren't falling as, as quickly as they would like to. So I'm not sure whether or not, uh, you know, I guess at the end of the day, if government continues to implement policies that drive down, you know, uh, kind of middle and higher income uh, or higher level price houses, perhaps that will trickle down to the lower end. But I'm not convinced that that's going to happen uh, as quickly as people would like.
0: Uh, because even if we, if we continue or the government continues with these types of taxes and continues, continues doing things with the purpose of driving down the value, haven't we always been told that uh, there's a reason why real estate is so expensive in Vancouver? It's a beautiful place. There's only so much land. It's not expanding. And uh, that's why, it, for, for part of the reason why it stays so expensive.
2: Absolutely, and and I think you know part of the part of my concern with this is that government is really focusing on the demand side. So they are they're absolutely looking at trying to drive down demand, which which many would argue is is probably not a bad thing uh, because it obviously does play into the whole supply demand uh, kind of uh, ecosystem. But we've also got to look at supply as well. And, and like you said, we only have so much land in this region. And we have to find ways of being able to, to, you know, put more people within the region at an affordable cost. And we have to look at supply mechanisms as well. And if you listen to um, uh, some of the folks out there who are talking about this, who are actually trying to build that affordable housing, they're saying that the permitting time can take longer than actually constructing the buildings. I mean, it's just become insane in terms of the amount of the regulatory framework and the costs and the added burden and financial uh, you know, uh, costs that go into actually building a, a condominium. So I think we have to look at both things. And I could. I think that's kind of what I was trying to go with my column is we could try on strictly doing it on the demand side, which we're doing, but we also have to look at supply as well.
0: All right. So the column is uh, at theorca.ca. Daniel, thanks so much for your time today.
2: Thanks for having me on, Joe.
0: Tens of thousands of runners will be taking part in the Vancouver Sun Run this morning. Uh, outside our studios, we can see balloons, we can see the setup, hear the music. Uh, Tim Hopkins is the Vancouver Sunrun race director, and he joins us on the line now. Good morning. Good morning. A busy morning uh, today. Uh, so tell us what's happening right now and what uh, people need to know if they're just getting to the area.
3: Uh, well, best way to come downtown is obviously by transit. Uh there's a uh, full uh, West Coast Express coming in this morning, C-Bus, uh, SkyTrain, Canada Line. Uh, everybody's operating at max capacity and uh, easiest way to get downtown. Uh, but uh, runners are all starting to arrive now. Uh, obviously, uh, we've got a Shaw Mini Sunrun start at 8 o'clock this morning in about uh, 12 minutes, and then we have our main event. Uh, That starts at 8.40 with our wheelchair athletes. Our women's uh, elite start at 8.50, and then our uh, men's elite start at 9. And then the masses are um, basically uh, following in after that. It takes about an hour and a half for uh, everyone to uh, cross the start line.
0: I, I remember doing it one year, and I hadn't even crossed the start line yet, and people had already finished the race. Um
3: yeah well it takes it, it does take a while you know it's just everybody we say take your time enjoy the music there's bands along the start there's lots to see and uh, and have fun
0: uh, Exactly that's the number one thing to to have fun uh, out there nice weather so far this morning it's not uh, pouring rain or anything like that uh, do you know how many people are taking part today uh, we're over 43,000. Probably, uh, I think the final total we'll know uh, in about an hour,
3: but uh, 43,300 and something was the last count that I heard, uh, which is uh, our largest number since uh, 2014.
0: Wow, very, very nice. Um, and people can as well, if you're uh, warming up and you've got a jacket or something that you're not uh, too attached to, uh, you can leave that, can't you? Or people can leave that for, for, um, for clothing to be donated?
3: Yes, we've got the Salvation Army on site and uh, it's, it's quite uh, interesting to watch as the sea of clothing gets uh, thrown off to the sides and the Salvation Army uh, volunteers come along uh, and pick it all up and gets laundered and then put out to their different programs around uh, Metro Vancouver.
0: Very nice. And as far as safety, uh, I guess we want people, uh, it it is a busy, as you said, more than 43,000 people will be running. Um, And are people pretty good about uh, if people are slowing down or stopping to walk, getting out of the way and and not uh, getting injured, that kind of thing?
3: Yeah, we've kind of got a runner's etiquette that we follow and it's uh, with walkers going to the right, uh, slow down and let the faster runners go by. But we also have designed the race so that there's different colour corrals and the faster corrals are at the front the slower corrals are towards the back of the pack. And, uh, we just encourage everybody to take their time, enjoy the run. There's 16 bands along the course and another band, uh, in the finish.
0: And what is it about this race? Do you think, is it the, the weather, the route to being a really pretty route or what is it that attracts so many people?
3: Well, it's been part of Vancouver now for 35 years. Uh, we've had over a million individual runners since the inception of the race. And, uh, it's almost like it's uh, the kickoff to the spring season every year. Um, we've had uh, amazing support from the Vancouver Sun, our presenting sponsor Ford. They're out there talking up uh, the event from uh, beginning of December right through until race day.
0: And for spectators, so is there a best place, uh, do you think, or, or the, the, do you suggest as far as on the route to, for the best place to view the race?
3: Uh, well, we cross both the Burrard Bridge and the Cami Street Bridge. Uh, great viewing points there, as well as uh, all along English Bay. We usually have lots of spectators uh, down in the Davie-Denman area as people uh, uh, run along the waterfront.
0: All right. And as far as registration, if someone's hearing this just now and thinking, oh, that sounds like fun, um, they're probably out of luck. It's not. They can't register today, can they? Uh,
3: they can't register today. We do uh, open registration November 1st uh, in the fall.
0: All right. And uh, what about the after party? What happens when people finish the race?
3: Uh, BC Place Stadium. We've got uh, bands inside. We've got uh, food, drinks. Uh, All of our sponsors are giving out product and uh, great entertainment on the stage. We also do our awards and just an opportunity to come inside the stadium, warm up and uh, have some good uh, memories of the run along uh, Vancouver streets.
0: And you might not know this. uh, Do you know what the the record is or the fastest uh, the race has ever been completed? Uh, off the top of my head,
3: I believe it's twenty-seven thirty-six. Yikes, that's fast. That is fast,
0: <laughs> um, but not probably not. There will be a lot of people uh, going slow, uh, slow and steady today. Uh, do you find too that people come back once they've done it? They come back and are, are repeat runners, or, or does it draw a lot of new people each year?
3: Uh, it does draw a lot of new people each year, but we do have uh, over twelve hundred uh, corporate teams. Uh, a lot of those team captains come back every year. They can range in size from uh, 10 people all the way up to uh, four or 500 people at a time. So the corporate teams are really um, a big part of the event. Uh, we've got Canadian Western Bank that's been uh, a sponsor of that division for a number of years now. And, and it really is where our uh, largest number of participants come from. And I think the bad area with the captains uh, promoting it for us, it, uh, it really helps grow the numbers.
0: All right. And uh, a note for people, so for people who aren't participating in this, uh, when will the roads reopen and when will things uh, get back to normal?
3: There's uh, rolling closures throughout uh, downtown Vancouver. Um, Our start line is completely closed down now and then parts of the course start closing at 8 a.m. And uh, they start reopening as early as uh, 11 a.m. But our uh, finish line at BC Place will remain closed till about 1.30 this afternoon. So it's... uh, VancouverSunring.com has all your information.
0: All right, sounds great. Tim, thank you so much. Have a great race day.
3: All right, thanks a lot.
0: Well, an online account from a former retail worker who says she was pressured to pierce the ears of a crying seven-year-old girl has reignited the discussion about the circumstances in which children should be allowed to define their own boundaries. Raylene Marks says she quit her job at Claire's Accessories at a store in Edmonton after she refused to pierce the ears of a sobbing seven-year-old girl who was begging her mother to go home. Eventually, the mother relented and officials now... From Claire's Illinois headquarters say they are investigating and they are working to clarify company policy. The statement said a statement issued by the company said any child piercing we do is carried out with the best care in consultation with and with the agreement of the legal guardian. However the 32 year old former worker uh, Raylene Marks uh, put this on Facebook put it on social media uh, talking about what happened and what led to her resigning from her job and uh, has been getting a ton of feedback. Most of it, she says, supportive for her being hesitant, for her not wanting to go ahead with the piercing. Let's bring in Julie Romanovsky, uh, early childhood consultant uh, and uh, the company Misbehavior, a parenting coach as well. Uh, Julie, thank you so much for joining us. What is your response when you hear the details of what happened here?
4: Hi, Jill. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Uh, when I... When I hear this type of thing, yes, it's about ear piercing. Uh, the girl didn't want to, but I think it's actually a lot deeper than that. It's about don't touch my body and I don't feel comfortable. And so I really want to speak about that angle. Um, there's also another aspect, uh, Raylene Marks, that feeling she had within her that, that it, something just didn't feel right. We also have to talk about that too. So yes I realize this about ear piercing a girl was forced um, but we see this all the time. We see this at dinner time with kids. Eat your peas and you know you have to sit here until you eat them all. And so we really want to tap into when does the child get to have a say about themselves? We're from generations to generations we've been used to parents controlling their children. That was the norm. Well that has changed now. That no longer works um, and if you do get any kind of uh, you know response from controlling a child uh, it's short-term and it'll have very bad long-term effects we need to start empowering children and teaching them the skills to govern themselves that's the definition of autonomy and so in this exact example uh we the the parent not just like the parent because you don't know the backstory. But really, the opportunity had been severed for the girl to be able to stand up for herself, to be able to say no and feel empowered, and that be the decision. I know eventually they did leave, but after about 30 minutes, that's too long. So I think there's
0: quite a bit within this uh, actual example that we need to highlight and become more aware of. And what struck me is we're talking about ear piercing. We're talking about something that isn't mandatory. It's not like they were in a doctor's mm. office and this seven-year-old needed to get a shot and, and the shot was yeah. life-saving, in which case I can imagine you might be in a similar scenario. Nobody wants to get a shot. The parent has to say, no, you actually, you need to do this. Uh, that's not the case yeah. in ear piercing.
4: Well, that's just it. And that's what makes it worse is that it isn't life-threatening. Um n- so I mean that it's being forced for something that really won't matter in the end, and so I, that's the part I want to talk about is to highlight for parents to try and step away from controlling the child and rather control the situation and yourself. And so we need to start building these skills in our children, and more like more so in girls. So now looking, you know, at myself as. <laughs> As a 40-something, I'm just learning about personal boundaries and expressing my feelings and putting my foot down and saying, no, that doesn't feel right. That's not good for me in my life. And so I really want to make sure our young children are having these skills built at the earliest of ages, as well as having opportunities to exercise and practice this. It's critical Because these aren't just, you know, children. This is just not a seven-year-old. She's going to grow up and she's going to become an adult. And that we have to look at is how are these skills going to translate into real life in adulthood.
0: And is it different as well in this case? Because we're talking about a seven-year-old. This isn't a teenager who maybe wanted to get her ears pierced and then was backing out at the last minute. This is a seven-year-old child.
4: Exactly. Exactly. But yet, being seven, still probably has, and what sounds like in the, in the news article, uh, a voice and, a, and clear communication saying, no, uh, I want to go home, I want to go home. Uh, we don't wait a half an hour of, of pleading and begging. We go immediately. And another thing, too, I want to add in, and I don't know this part about this situation because it wasn't spoken about, but before we even go into ear piercing. Talk about the different things that might happen, the different scenarios, the different choices. If you don't feel good, if you don't like it, we'll do this. If you do want to go ahead, then you know we'll do that. But giving children choices within situations as much as possible and then being able to back out. I find that is really not offered to most people, which is when I make a decision... And at this point, when I'm feeling good and and I'm not even in the situation, yeah, let's go for it. Let's do that. But then when I'm in the situation, I I don't have a back-out plan. And a lot of people say, well, you made the decision. You you have to do it now. And I have a hard time with that. Yes, I made the decision, but the circumstances have changed. My body is telling me something. I, I got new information or whatever it is. We should always be allowed to have a back-out plan. Um, and honor those feelings. And the one thing I liked about um, Raylene Marks was she honored that feeling she had inside of her gut. Something just didn't feel right. And we need to um, become more aware of that type of thing, too, and promote that. That's what it's about.
0: Right. Would you say that that, that Raylene Marks handled the situation the best way she could? Absolutely. Although she waited 30 minutes, I probably wouldn't have waited that long. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long time when you think about it, of a child screaming for the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't have waited that long. But no, I thought what she did was,
4: was uh, right, on, right on spot there because uh, she put her foot down. And, you know, she probably realized her job was at stake as well as criticism and judgment She's gotten a lot of praise and support but I'm sure she's also gotten a lot of judgment and and that's unfortunate. But I want to highlight what she did. She not only honored herself, like her feeling and that gut feeling that didn't feel right, she honored a child. To me that's that's priceless.
0: And just one more question. We've got about a minute and a half left. Is it different too, yeah. because we're talking about something that causes pain and again, is not a necessity in life. It's ear piercing. Uh, you mentioned the whole, the eat your peas. Uh, I would imagine uh, you, you can't, if, if a seven year old is a picky eater or doesn't want to go to kindergarten or a grade one, it's difficult to reason with a, a seven year old. There are going to be times when a parent is going to want to lay down the law and say, end of discussion, this is happening.
4: That's just it. And it really depends on the situation. I'm not saying, hey, it's a free-for-all. Tell, let your kids tell you what to do. Absolutely not. I'm a big advocate. And the, the one-on-one coaching I do, the work, the main work we do is clear expectations. Anyone who knows me knows that I talk about clear expectations and boundaries. That's the governing law, so to speak. That's what is going to control everyone involved and the situation in a healthy, appropriate, and respectful manner. And so it takes the ease off the parent and it doesn't get us trapped into those where you have to, and I'm going to make you. Um, So talking about boundaries and bringing those up, um, that's huge. And we're not doing enough of it because there's physical boundaries, there's emotional boundaries, but talking to a child about making wise choices Eating your peas, I'd never force a kid to sit there for two, three hours to eat their peas because that was what was on your plate. But I'm also making sure that the fruits and vegetables, in you know, are getting into the child throughout the day so that the peas thing isn't a big issue. So there's a lot there to be discussed as well. But I think the takeaway for today is very much honor what a child is feeling, especially if it's that upsetting. That can really lead down the path of trauma. I'm actually at a conference uh, this weekend where that's the topic, childhood trauma. And it's not just the severe stuff. It's all of the minor ones as well. All right. not honoring the child.
0: We will uh, talk about that uh, more uh, yeah. another day. Julie, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. We are continuing uh, to go through the BC Book Prize nominees, and we are shifting a little bit this year. We normally do the fiction category. This year, we are doing the nonfiction category. And in this second week of taking a look at the nominated books, we are talking about a matter of confidence. And I know a lot of our listeners have read this book. Uh, joining me on the line are the authors, Rob Shaw and Richard Zussman. Thanks both of you for being with us this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Who did more work on the book?
5: Rob. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was different kinds of work. It was different. We did, uh, Richard tells this story of like, you know, he had this idea to do this book. And a lot of people kind of thought, oh, man, who's going to read a BC politics book? Like, (laughs) is that really something we want to spend our time on? But he dug around and got a bunch of interesting stuff. And I kind of took the lead on the
6: writing and it, it worked out.
0: Uh, and who came up with the, the uh, title?
6: Lisa, my wife, Lisa, did. So uh, former CKNW reporter, Lisa, used a, was the one that came up with it. Uh, it's a matter of contention in our household because we don't mention it in the book that she <laughs> came up with the title. So hopefully there'll be a, a second book and we can correct the record. if uh, Somehow, Rob and I can, if, if the political players in this province come up with something compelling enough for another book, uh, then we can correct the record on that one.
0: All right. And Richard, uh, so we'll give Lisa full credit for the title. Uh, walk us through, for people that haven't read it, uh, we know it's about BC politics. How did you decide where to have the starting point of the book and what stories to include?
6: Yeah, Joe, it, it was a tough decision at the beginning around timing because. You can look at it in different chunks, obviously. The BC liberal reign in this province started in 2001 with Gordon Campbell, uh, and he served for three terms. And then there was that transition of power to Christy Clark when Campbell left following the HST debacle. Uh, And Christy Clark reigned uh, for six years. And then there was the transition of power in 2017. It's an incredible story. So we sort of, Rob and I talked it out, and we were trying to figure out how much should this book cover? Should it cover the entire liberal legacy going back to 2001? Should we pick it up with Christy Clark or should we just focus at that point in the last year, which is basically the build up to the 2017 election, that election and negotiations and then the change of power leading to that confidence vote? Uh, And with help from uh, Vancouver Sun columnist Vaughn Palmer, who I think really pushed us to have that first chapter about Gordon Campbell, because it, it really sets up the story of what's to come. Like, Campbell gets into power, he governs, and then after his third victory, it's when he hits this big speed bump, which is the HST, which leads to his demise. And then ultimately, uh, Christy Clark comes back on the scene, you know, walking out of the studio that you're sitting in, although I know there's been renovation since then, but, you know, walking out of the CKW studio back into political life. So I think that's the timing works. We wanted to tell the story of those three premiers, Campbell, Clark, and Horgan, uh, and also sort of set up you know the the what led to Christy Clark being in power, how did she govern, and then ultimately, how
0: did she fall? All right. Uh, it's still the same chair. The uh, reno budget fella <laughs> was done before the chairs got replaced. Uh, so Rob, pick it up from there, because as you said, you, you took on uh, the, the writing aspect of this. I think some people might say uh, in BC politics, there have been some stories so uh, crazy, they might seem like fiction. How were you able to then take all of this uh, and write it down and make it clearly uh, people are enjoying it and make it something that, that uh, people could relate to?
5: Yeah, well, we started pretty early uh, realizing we didn't want to write a history textbook. You know, I mean, there's different ways you can go about chronicling events in, uh, you know, in B.C., and one is kind of a footnoted, you know, dense kind of like uh, academic textbook. And we just thought, I mean, if you start at the HST, this incredible citizen uprising, like that we've never seen in the province, and you go through Christy Clark and this crazy LNG, the election that we didn't, no one thought she was going to win, and then to this virtual tie in um, the last election and all the crazy kind of historic uh, things that happened, it's like a great nonfiction read, you know? I mean, it's got a compelling narrative of its own. It's full of all sorts of twists and turns and drama, and we just kind of leaned into that because, um, you know, I think both as journalists, there's this tendency probably to, to maybe kind of slow it down and write in our traditional way, and we just thought... Let's just kick this up a notch. And hopefully, you know, we both noticed when we were covering the last election and the fallout from it, there was this incredible interest in politics briefly from people who aren't normally, normally interested in it, uh, with, the, you know, with the confidence vote and the fall of the government and all this stuff. And we thought, let's aim the book at them. So if you got really interested in politics recently because of everything that happened, why don't we take you back a few years and take you all the way through the story. And so we tried to make it conversational, lots of characters, um, you know, and and I think it's accessible enough that if you don't know anything about politics, hopefully you enjoy reading it as well.
0: Well, and, and I think that's part of the reason why it works, too. And I was comparing it a bit to if if people are reading books about the Trump administration, when all of those books were coming out, the players were changing so quickly that before you finished reading the book, half the people mentioned in the book were gone. Whereas right. this, I mean, some of the players are gone, but it's still, uh, many of them are still there and you can still, you know, turn on the news at night and see them and see what's happening now.
6: Yeah, and I think that's part of what makes it interesting to people is we start to learn who John Horgan is and you start to see the decisions he makes, we hope that you can pick up this book and have an understanding of where he came from. And it may help predict what issues are important to him and what he prioritizes and what he feels was not dealt with properly. You know, back to the question you asked earlier, Jill, around, you know, how we choose what goes into the book. A lot of it was we were really fortunate that people were willing to tell their stories. And as you mentioned, some of them are out of politics, some are still in politics, We found a really great mix of people who wanted to help tell the story, and we're really thankful for uh, the political leaders, John Horgan and Christy Clark, especially, for allowing a lot of access to their staff to tell their stories, and for Christy Clark, her former staff, to tell those stories and help shape. You know the narrative and, and tell some of those exciting stories Rob was mentioning. And you know, I remember sitting down for some of these interviews. And you know, Rob and I have covered politics for a while now. And there were lots of stories people were telling us that we had never heard of, uh, that we had no uh, sense was were even happening. And then also these rumors that we had long heard uh, either get confirmed or denied. So that part was really fun, and that's what gets included in the books were those sort of moments that Rob and I thought, wow, I didn't know this, or this is a little bit different than I thought it went down. And Uh, I think those really compelling stories around David Eby especially and and how close he was potentially to being the leader before the 2017 election and John Horgan just stepping aside and stories around Sonia first now the green MLA and being sick to her stomach around the stressing decision of, you know, should I support the NDP or the Liberals? Because she was so adamantly opposed to uh, supporting the Liberals. So, you know, it's those compelling stories we heard from people that, that made it into the book.
0: Did anyone tell you stories but said, uh, you know, off the record, you can't put that in the book?
5: No, I think we, we did. The, the style of the book is such that Um, We interviewed everyone on what we call kind of background, which is we it's kind of like building this tower. You know, we got everybody's stories uh, from all over the place. Um, And then we just kind of looked to see who we trusted and where they overlapped and how many people in each room we could get to confirm it. And I think people were pretty aware at the time that, um, you know, when we were talking to them, we were gathering (laughs) lots of material. They They were kind of getting some stuff off their chest. So there wasn't anyone who said to us, um, hey, I got this great story to tell you, but you can't put it in the book because at that point, we're not really interested in talking to them. <laughs> so everything everything we got is in there. I would say, you know, it was such an interesting time because when we were writing this, Christy Clark had just fallen and John Horgan was just premier. We're talking like in the weeks of kind of post-transition. And there were some raw emotions, some anger, some resentment, some excitement. I think we got the new premier at a time before he was kind of like put in the premier's bubble, you know, sealed off by all his gatekeepers and staff. And we got the former premier at a time before she had moved on in her mind and didn't want to talk about this stuff anymore and was on to her next chapter. So it was kind of raw, but uh, I think it, it provided the best material and the timing was just about right.
0: It's 336 pages. Did you have to cut a lot out or was it bigger at any point?
6: There was. We did have to cut a bunch out, Jill. There was one chapter um, on the recount in Courtney Comox, which at the time was like this big moment. uh, But we ultimately determined in the grand scheme of things, that wasn't what determined the outcome of the election. So we had a full chapter we had to cut out. We actually read uh, that uh, deleted chapter when we went to Courtney uh, as part of our book tour. So that was sort of fun. Uh, for the people there, and there were lots of players there who were in that chapter, and then you know, we just we were surprised with how much material we ultimately had, and so we just pared a lot down, I forget how many, we must have cut out 15 to 20,000 words, um, including that uh, chapter we deleted. But I think we kept all the best things. So I don't think anyone that's reading it can think, what am I missing out? We, we made sure that, that all the great moments were, were captured in there.
0: And having written this and knowing all of this inside information and such, uh, any surprises that we uh, we still have uh, this government uh, supported by the Greens, that we haven't gone back to the polls?
5: Well, uh, well <clears throat> yeah, I mean, <laughs> we do kind of, I think as we cover politics now, we do sort of look back at some of the stuff in the book around the negotiations and we think, huh, you know, like had the greens known they were signing on to a deal with an NDP party that was going to proceed with LNG and approve the sightseeing dam. um, uh, You know, you kind of wonder, you look at how important those things were as we chronicled in the book, like how key some items were. Um, And I, but I still think the outcome would have been the same because We get into just some of the, I think, the public's visceral reaction to Christy Clark, how polarizing she became, how for some people around the negotiating table, like Sonia first, note, she was just kryptonite. Uh, And so despite how rocky maybe in some ways that relationship between the Greens and NDP has become, um, probably, you know, you would have had that same outcome, despite all the things that we know now.
0: And uh, you guys clearly still get along. Uh, Any plans to write another (laughs) book together? It just depends
6: like I was saying at the beginning, Jill. like if there is something worth writing about, I think it would be fun to do it again like it, we we've been so and you know thank you to the listeners it's been so amazing the support that people have given us uh, throughout this process and you know it was a national bestseller when it came out, and it's really exciting to be nominated for this award a real honor and so you know we, we like telling these stories, and if people want to read them. And we'd be happy to tell it, but the politicians need to give us something exciting to write about.
0: <laughs> very, very true. And not to go fully down this path, but Richard, I mean, you uh, ultimately lost the job you had at the time because you wrote the book. Uh, had you known that going in, you might not have done it.
6: But Jill, you and I get to be colleagues now. <laughs> exactly. What's
0: wrong <go> with that? <laughs> and,
6: and, the, and the team at Global BC has been so incredible to me. So it's been amazing. It's been a fun year and a bit. Uh, that part was. Uh, up and down and rocky, but it's amazing now. And it's amazing being part of the Global BC team. And, and you know, as you know, it's in the CKNW team and the Global News team. It's just a incredible uh, team, and, and it's been really, really fun being part of that for the All last right, all right, day. cut it
0: out. The bosses don't listen on weekends.
6: <laughs>
0: oh, we won some awards last weekend, Jill, so it's been pretty good. Uh, just kidding. All right, well, Rob and Richard, thank you both so much, and uh, great to have you on to talk about this, and congratulations on the nomination.
5: Thanks, Thanks, Jill. Thanks.
2: 911
4: 911 911 what's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh my god, the ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hello? 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 Are you there?